Hey guys, welcome back to Joko Yo. Um, glad you're still listening. This episode today is about one of the biggest heroes to come out of Johnston County. But you know, like nobody's ever heard of her. I don't understand it. I mean, you got your Ava Gardner, that's wonderful, but y'all, y'all, when, when you find out, if you didn't already know, when you find out, you'll be like, Dern, where is her certificate? Where is her monument? But you'll see. I want to start off with a, with a story that sort of sets the tone for what's to come later. You'll understand whenever you hear the whole thing. It's, at first, it's going to seem like it doesn't really match, but yeah, no, no, it does. Here you go. In 1906 came the case of one Charles Peacock. He's a store owner in Smithfield. And apparently he had been playing poker with some of his friends, as happened pretty frequently. Sometimes, you know, it, it, it happened. And don't really know the exact details of the case, not because there weren't any, but because don't really know them all. But what I did read was that apparently he and a Alonzo Jones had gotten into a tiff, a, conver- a heated conversation, and Alonzo Jones that night ends up murdered. This makes national news. And if you don't believe that, I have checked out newspapers and archives and archives of new newspapers. Man, it was everywhere. New York Times even wrote about this. Pretty big deal. And so the case comes in. Evidence was pretty conclusive. I mean, it's... I mean, the evidence is there. And there's even an eyewitness who said he actually saw... Mr. Peacock murder Mr. Jones. Now, the the eyewitness was named Isaac Sanders. Now, some business owners, when uh, they were called to testify and uh, to give their, their their take, of course, they weren't eyewitnesses. They were character witnesses because the only eyewitness that was there was, you know, Isaac Sanders. Some business owners said that it would be really hard for them to believe that Peacock would murder anybody, but they also knew that Peacock and Jones disliked each other recently. They'd be getting to some tiffs. But they're character witnesses, and Peacock's mother and Peacock's brother also character witnesses. But they're character witnesses. Here we have an actual eyewitness to the scene. We have the time period matches. We have stories that match the the time period, the stories that match. I mean, the eyewitness is there. It's a pretty open and shut case. Now, Peacock's lawyer was one James H. Pugh. You may have heard that name recently. He is the brother to United States Representative Edward William Pugh of Smithfield. And it's interesting to see the 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 fact that the record that James, who is Peacock's lawyer, called his brother to the stand, even though Congressman Pugh, his brother, did not even know Peacock, and really wasn't even there. Why would his lawyer call his own brother? What's it? What's he got to do with anything? 
Well, this. The testimony that Congressman Pugh gave was simply that the words of the only eyewitness to the murder were inadmissible because Mr. Sanders was black. And, and I want to quote Congressman Pugh, therefore a member of a lying, stealing race. And that is it. Motives, there. Eyewitness, there. Um, time, match. The thing that set Mr. Peacock free was Congressman Pugh's racism. Peacock did not serve a day. Now, this is the world that Reverend Joseph Melton this is the world that Joseph Melton's third child was born into. He wanted better for them than this. Now, it would be really hard for Reverend Joseph Melton of Smithfield to not know about this. It made national news, and he's in Smithfield. This trial happened in Smithfield. He wanted better for them. So, he and his children all moved to Greensboro. Now, his third child was actually born in Smithfield, and this was not a place he wanted to raise his children. Again, they moved to the industrial town of Greensboro. Now, the pull for Greensboro was the existence of two colleges for African Americans. Mr. Reverend Melton was African American. The two colleges were NCANT and Bennett College. Now, the early 20th century that we're talking about here was a whole generation of freedmen that did not leave the southern states. I mean, a generation of freedmen that did not leave the southern states. I mean, they, they were pressed, obviously. From this story before, they're pretty pressed. Race relations were a bit unlike those that had existed before the American Civil War and Reconstruction that, that sort of, you know, changed everything. And there was a great deal of anger, obviously, among the white population and the black population. Dreams of equality on one side and dreams of another nation on another were both dashed. Some groups, black and white, moved away from the South. Some stayed in the South, leaving agricultural labor for newly founded industrial labor, textile mills and factory, like Reverend Joseph Melton. Now, Joseph Melton didn't want to go to labor, he was a teacher, and he was a reverend, which made him as, which made him basically the middle class. And some of his factory jobs, along with the educated professions like Reverend Melton's, offered freedmen and their descendants a chance at something they had never had before. I mean, an actual living and, like I say, a chance at a middle class lifestyle. And segregation was legalized nationally in 1896, 31 years after the end of the American Civil War and 19 after the end of Reconstruction. Meaning that there, that there by 1896, there was an entire generation of African Americans that had never known slavery. That was the first. That's the first ever in this country. Reverend Melton was one of them. And so was his wife, Aaliyah A. Melton. Again, both school teachers and both saw education as the best way to a middle class for children. Upper class was not really attainable in the Jim Crow era for, for African Americans. 
Educated positions leading to the middle class was pretty much your ceiling if you're African American in the South, and the Meltons knew it. As I said, Joseph Melton was a minister and school teacher. Elian was a school teacher just outside Smithfield, and their third child was born in 1919. They were witnesses to the to the, the trial that I quoted at the very beginning of this podcast, and they decided that they wanted better. They went to Greensboro again for those two colleges. Now, Joseph and Elian refused to let their children ride segregated school buses and made sure that their children went to all-black schools so, in, in the words of Joseph, they could develop their own sense of self rather than one imposed on them by whites. Joseph's words. Now, this third child that's born, again, there, there's a girl and a boy born before her. Her father understood, himself being a graduate of Shaw University, what it was like. He said that nobody was going to sleep under his roof without a college education. That was your ticket. All three of his children received bachelor's degrees and an appreciation of the injustice and the inequality of the Jim Crow South and a desire to do what their father had told them. He, her father, their father, told them often, again, quoting Joseph Melton, be God's hands. And if it's wrong, it's your responsibility to fix it. This third child... Her name was Elrita. She met and married a man named Dr. Gerardo Alexander, Tony Alexander. She taught music and she worked in the A&T library after she went to college and graduated with her own degree. When a friend of hers was running for city council and, and lost because other candidates were paying people to vote for them instead, she was disheartened. The other candidates were white folks the guy who ran for city council was not. She was disheartened. But the day after his loss, he brought her a copy of Black's Commentaries on the Law and said to her, go to law school, change the law. That's all it took for her. In 1943, she decided that she was going to apply to Columbia Law School. She did. And she was admitted making her the very first African-American woman admitted to Columbia Law School. And she's also going to be the first African-American woman to graduate from Columbia Law School two years later. That by itself is big. Like, dang, good job. She began practicing law in 1946 in Harlem and soon came to Raleigh to take the NC bar exam, but the secretary said, again, quoting the secretary, Blacks had to live here 12 months before the exam, and that Elrita's law license from New York carried no weight in North Carolina. Okay. Same rule didn't apply to whites, but. So Elrita, for a year, went back and forth from North Carolina to New York, maintaining a residence in Moth, and in 1947, she applied for her license again, and she got it. She became the first black woman to be a licensed lawyer in North Carolina. Boom, boom. <laughs> and she began practicing in Greensboro. Now, if you're doing your time, uh, we're talking 1947 when she got her license. If you're doing your time and you're keeping up with the history of the area and know that she lives in Greensboro, 
you may be making a connection. The Greensboro sit-ins are going to happen just a few years from then. She was a lawyer in Greensboro when the sit-ins happened. But she chose not to get legally involved because, partially, she said, in North Carolina, every case is a civil rights case. Elrita said her words, If I had been a civil rights lawyer, that's all I would have ever done. She said she didn't just want to change laws. She wanted to change minds. So she defended everybody. Rich, poor, black, white. She even defended a Klan member in a property dispute. She's a black woman defending a Klan member. What is she thinking? Well, she'll tell you. She told you. She said it out loud. She wanted to change people's minds. And if she changed enough minds, including Klan members, then she can kill the Klan. She was... Other, she, she had her own way of doing the civil rights movement. When others carried signs, well, she carried a pen. She was a successful lawyer, partly because of her knowledge of the law, but partially because she saw through the law. That was probably her biggest gift. She knew the, the details. I mean, she knew that, I mean, that everyone I've ever read, I would, would, all I've read about her, she knew the details of law. She could quote laws. But her biggest gift was that she could see under the law and know, you know, the purpose of the laws. She became quite famous for a few cases and, and was encouraged to run for district court judge, which she actually won in 1968, making her the first African-American woman to be elected a district court judge in America not just North Carolina. How about that? In 1974, she ran for Chief Justice of North Carolina Supreme Court. She registered actually as a Republican, surprisingly, you would think, but she said that the Democrats never helped her out any. And even though she was a registered Republican, she still received no support from, Rep from Republican Governor Jim Holtzhauser, or United States Senator Jesse Helms. They didn't speak for her at all. In fact, party support, Republican Party support, was behind a guy named James Newcomb for the Chief Justice spot. And Newcomb's qualifications were that he was a fire extinguisher salesman and had no college or legal background. Yeah, about that. The party chose him over her. Uh, now, you didn't have to be an attorney to run for North Carolina courts back then. And, of course, not being backed by her party for the Republican nomination, she didn't win. That's fine. She didn't win this, this dude, you know, who had no qualification whatsoever. He ran. But he was running against a lady named Susie Sharp, a Democrat who ended up winning in another first, first woman Chief Justice of the North Carolina Supreme Court. And so, Susie Sharp, who became the Chief Justice of the North Carolina Supreme Court, then nearly immediately began work to make sure all candidates for the office were qualified. 
as a direct nod to El Rita, Melton, Alexander, Ralston. And she may have been more associated. Greensboro claims her, rightfully so. She also taught school in South Carolina, Virginia. But L. Rita Melton Alexander Ralston was born in Smithfield. And man, you can have your Ava Gardner. I'll take L. Rita. Y'all have a great day. Uh, hope to uh, talk to you again sometime soon. And, uh, Hope you enjoyed it. Be good.